buying clothes on the internet sucks. It's such a hassle. I don't like it. It's just as bad as going there in person and wandering around like you huffed paint and you lost a shoe and you can't find it. You get tired of trying on stuff and you finally say, you know what? I'll keep wearing this shirt for 10 more years. It's no better on the internet. But somebody finally figured out how to take the hassle out of shopping and their name is Trunk Club. Here's what they do. They pick out the clothes for you, send it to you in a box. You open it up. It's a trunk filled with clothes that's personalized for you, for your style, because it was picked out by a human being based off of what you said, your preferences, based off of your measurements, your sizes, your style, and it's not a subscription service. You only pay for the clothes you keep from the trunk. No hidden charges, just great clothes. How do you get in on this? Go to trunkclub.com slash smart. You'll get styled for free, free shipping both ways, only pay for the clothes you keep, and you get all of this by just going to trunkclub.com slash smart for a trunk filled with clothes you will love wearing. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 72. This is an in-between episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Oh, man, my voice sounds way worse than I expected. It's an in-between episode because I have the flu. Actually, I'm just getting over the flu, and that's why I sound this way. And I got it, I think, while traveling to London and to Manchester, north of London, where I was, I was there gathering interviews for my new book. I was spending time with the fine people of Ogilvy Change, including Rory Sutherland and the amazing people at the UK Behavioral Insights team. And I interviewed a former 9-11 truther. And uh, they all go together with more than 100 hours of interviews I've been I've put together and I've done and been working on for many, many months now on this new book. They all share similar experiences related to how people change their minds. That is what the new book is going to be about. The psychology behind about faces and flips and epiphanies and conversions and those times when people realize they are wrong and they trade one ideology, one set of beliefs for another set, another ideology, and not just individuals, also groups of people, how we all together can seem to think one way in one decade and another way in another, how that happens and what it means to change your mind. What is the psychology behind norm change and attitude change and belief change and so on. So that's what the new book is going to be about. And I'm working on it right now and I have a lot more to say about it. We'll, we'll, we'll talk all about it more in the future, but this episode was supposed to be part six of our logical fallacy season, but to keep our season going, I needed to complete one more interview and I've just been too sick since returning to make that happen. So it's all rescheduled. And it will come together in the next episode, I promise. But instead of continuing, we're going to take a one-episode break with this in-between episode, which will be a rebroadcast of 
one of my favorite interviews from more than a year ago. And it relates well to the logical fallacy stuff we've been talking about over the last few weeks because, and it relates really well, by the way, to the, uh, the book that I'm working on too, because this is about the Dunning-Kruger effect, that weird psychological phenomenon by which people who have no idea what they're doing have no idea that they have no idea what they're doing. It's, uh, it's that thing where we're unaware that we lack the skill to tell how unskilled and unaware we are. It is that thing that leads people to audition for X factor and other shows and going, they're willing to go in front of national television in front of millions of people, even though they don't have the skill to compete at that level. It is what keeps your friends and your family and your peers and your coworkers from telling you that maybe, maybe you shouldn't do that thing that you're about to do. It's, it's that moment when you are unskilled yet unaware. And when you experience that, it's called the Dunning Kruger effect. And David Dunning came on the show about a year ago and explained it himself. In his own words, David Dunning is a social psychologist whose research focuses on accuracy and illusion in human judgment. He writes that in his social psychology work, he's interested in how and when people's perceptions of themselves and their surroundings differ from an objectively definable reality. He has a PhD in psychology from Stanford. He's a professor of psychology at Cornell. He is one of the pillars of modern psychology. His Dunning-Kruger effect is something that should be on the lips and the minds of all internet citizens. And without further ado, here is our interview with Professor David Dunning. Okay, David, it feels like if there is anything that I know about in this world, it's my own self, like who I am, uh, what I am and what I am not capable of, how I compare to others and so on. What does your research tell us about the image that we have of ourselves and of our skills and our talents? Well, uh, what our research suggests is that, uh, of course, the Greeks uh, said that knowing thyself was one of the most important tasks that you could ever do in life. But our work suggests that this is one of the most intrinsically difficult tasks to do. Um, that is, left to your own devices without the help of other people. Uh, we're just not in a position really to know ourselves. Um, we live in a world that gives us misinformation or doesn't give us crucial information. Uh, knowing thyself is an intrinsically difficult task. I mean, the world doesn't give us the information we need to really know what we're good at and what we're bad at. Um, often it gives us misleading information. And often we're guilty of misleading ourselves. So at the end of the day, if you compare uh, what people say about themselves and, and what they truly believe about themselves to the reality of themselves, and that's what I do as a psychologist, I, can, I measure the reality of people, uh, what you find is some relationship, but the relationship between what people think about themselves and the reality of themselves is relatively meager to often non-existent. And this is the, like one of the most difficult things to to fully accept and, 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 uh, realize when it comes to, uh, when you start to really explore psychology and it, it, because not only is it that it seems that we're bad at assessing ourselves, we don't feel that we feel the opposite of that. Is that something that you, you see as well in your research? Oh, that's right. Yeah. We often do have a feeling that we really do know ourselves and we know what we're capable of. 
And um, the mistake that we make is that uh, we often think we're capable of lots of things uh, that we actually aren't capable of. That is, we're overconfident, uh, we're too certain about our abilities, uh, uh, too confident in our expertise, uh, a little too... Um, uh, having a little bit too much hubris in our moral character. and But the key here is that people really believe it. They really believe rather positive images of themselves. Though when you actually test out what people can actually do or what they really do, uh, the picture isn't that positive. Yeah, I, I remember the first time in my life that I really recognized that this was, this was true was um, in college, I staged a, um, a fighting game tournament where I, uh, I, had, um, I set up all these, uh, these video game systems and I invited people from around the country to the uh, university to play a uh, particular uh, fighting game. And it, we had a sort of a group of friends, like it was like eight to 10 people in our hometown who uh, played this game and we thought that we were amazing at it. We thought that we were the best... Uh, in the world. And I didn't, I had no problem inviting the champions from the country to come play against us. And every single one of us lost, uh, both of our matches immediately. Like we didn't even, <laughs> we didn't even place, we didn't even mm-hmm. come close. We were absolutely destroyed. Um, and I remember all of us sort of shaking our heads and rubbing our, our temples and thinking like, how could we not just be, uh, not okay, but act, actually suck. <laughs> like, how is that possible? Um, and I bet that, sort of uh that happens a lot amongst um people who feel or like sort of at the amateur level feel that they have um achieved something and that there's not much distance between that amateur and, and level and master level is is this something that you've uh, seen in your research as well well yeah uh not only have we seen it but uh, a lot of people have seen it that is that um uh you know if people are at the amateur level uh they really haven't seen the master level so they've seen maybe hints of it, and maybe they've seen that uh, occasional things where another person's a little bit better than they are. But that's all they've ever seen. Um, and so when they and, and this often uh, explains the trauma of going to college, when they go from <laughs> high school and being the best of their swimming team to college, and suddenly being in the you know uh, down in the bottom twenty percent of the people who are trying out, um, uh, they. Uh, begin to realize it's just what a small pond they were a fish in. That is that a, a lot of the problem we have in assessing ourselves is we don't get to see the entire range of competence out there, all the way from the worst, uh, all the way to the best. And uh, not knowing what the best looks like, we can presume uh, that we're very close to that top. Um, and the reason we think we're close to the top is we really haven't seen that top. Right. Uh, and, uh, uh, it is the case. I, I've been a college professor for a few decades now, and there is a time in about the first half semester when students begin to realize all these other students are are good, and there are some students here that, that uh, who seem to be supernaturally good, and they've just never seen that, mm-hmm. um, and that's part of the reason why they thought they were. Uh, uh, they thought they were so skilled beforehand. Uh, they're being exposed to an entirely different world. I, I think I think of it like you know un- uncles that I have that think that they could win Jeopardy. You know, but if, if you put, oh, yeah. if you if you actually put them in front of Alex Trebek, they wouldn't. They would go negative immediately. Um, <laughs> no, I think that's no, I think that's right. I mean, uh, 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 one of the things we get to do when we're watching Jeopardy is we get to choose which questions we answer. We're not watching how many questions we just sort of skip. 
And the problem is all those questions we skip are going to make us losers when we actually go on uh, the program. And put on top of that the fact that uh, you're nervous, the cameras are on you, Alex Trebek probably is much more imposing in person than than through the TV set. Um, uh, You know, people just haven't had the experience that's going to... Uh, give them a more accurate clue as to uh, where their skill actually lies. When I uh, first uh, was reading your your research and your work, I, I the, the very first example that came to my mind was um, uh, uh, reality television shows that are about um, people who are um, trying to win at some sort of talent competition or trying mm-hmm. to win at singing. And um, I know that those shows purposefully grab a couple people who aren't very good and put them out there for ridicule. But um, you'd think at this point that those people, people would know that's that's happening and they wouldn't go along with it. Is 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 that the Dunning-Kruger effect whenever um, you have people who are not very good at singing who actually go all the way to the end and they think that they're going to win that competition? Well, it's a good example of the Dunning-Kruger effect. That is, uh, in, in fact, uh, in the early days... Um, the name Dunning-Kruger effect was uh, competing with uh, the name American Idol uh, effect Ah. because American Idol uh, had all these examples. Of course, they're chosen for television, but we had all these examples of people who truthfully thought they were good uh, when, in fact, um, they were nowhere near any sense of the term good in terms of their their singing. And uh, and in looking at what's going on for those individuals, it looks like they are unfortunately in the Dunning-Kruger world or in the American Idol version of, uh, of the Dunning-Kruger world um, because um, uh, one of the issues that makes uh, self-evaluation very hard, knowing if you're good or you're bad, is that um, – Often the information you're using to produce uh, your answer, to produce your performance, let's say if you're an American Idol, is exactly the same information or evidence you're using to judge yourself. And, of course, everybody is trying to do the best that they can. So, pe- uh, so people are singing. They're singing their best. Uh, they're probably hearing something that's pretty good. Uh, that is, what we hear internally is different from what other people are hearing. And... Um, uh, because of that, they think they're doing at least okay when, uh, uh, in the old days, the Simon Cowell might be, you know, wincing in the corner and diving under the desk or, um, or, or the judges are patiently waiting because they know that the, the camera is going to take their reaction shot at the end. And it's, and the reaction shot is not going to be the one the contestant wanted to see. Um, uh, but it's basically that people who are um, singing, what they're hearing is different from what the world is hearing. And what they're hearing makes them believe they're doing much better than uh, they're actually doing. That's the Dunning-Kruger world. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine that like, that in their hometown, they may be the best singer. Or they're in their group of friends. They're the best at what they do. And um and, you know, there's all, the, all this American stuff goes into it. We're like, you know, believe in your dreams. Don't listen to people until you don't have it. You know, it's a, it can be, it can really be this tough to break out of psychological cocoon that, that um, I'm always afraid that I'm inside of one of those cocoons. 
Well, but yeah, that's absolutely true. But here's the other problem um, with that, which is that other people conspire uh, with us to keep us in those cocoons. That is, uh, one of the things I tell my students is uh, do remember that what people say to your face is not what they're saying about you behind your back. Mm. Um, and uh, we live in a world that's polite. And we live in a world in which people you, you know, just want to make it through the day uh, without too much disharmony and too much rancor and too much argument. So uh, you may not have the best um, voice in the world. There may be other people who are painfully aware, and I do mean painfully aware, that uh, you don't have the best voice in the world. They may actually be enablers in the belief that you can actually sing good enough to go on uh, an audition to the TV show. <laughs> Mediocrity enablers. I want, I want you to put that into a, a research paper. Uh, that's a great term. <laughs> Well, actually, it is, actually, it is a great term. Uh, but the key about that is, if you go through the day, just mark how many times during the day you're being a mediocrity enabler. Uh, and th this is just a conspiracy we, we we do for each other, and that's terrific for you know conversations. That's terrific for um, uh, everyday life. But it can lead a person uh, who actually <laughs> believes it into um, situations with uh, bigger outcomes. Yeah. And now we take a break from our show for a word from our sponsors. You already know that The Great Courses is this fantastic service. I've talked about it for years. It's this video learning service that puts out these courses that have like 24 and 36 separate lectures in one subject taught by a top professor in his or her field about a thing that you want to learn about, about how your mind works, about art, literature, history, philosophy, science, cooking, photography, all sorts of interesting stuff. Now, that same company is offering a new service called The Great Courses Plus. You get unlimited access to a huge library of their lecture series in many different topics, and you can just pick and choose and decide what you want to listen to, what you want to watch at your leisure from this giant catalog of stuff. Here's my watch list right now. How we learn, cognitive behavioral therapy, redefining reality, click, I'm clicking, have to click ahead to get to more stuff. The inexplicable universe, the science of information, the intelligent brain, and there must be 25 more that I've found that I'm going to listen to. Each one of these 24, 12, 36 individual, curated, vetted, well-produced lectures on a topic that I want to learn more about. This is such a cool service. And now listeners of my show can get behavioral economics when psychology and economics collide and hundreds of other courses for free, for nothing. This is a, just one of these courses, just this one behavioral economics course is a $235 value. Now you can eat from this giant buffet of knowledge, including this one course, behavioral economics taught by Professor Scott Hutel for free. Now, this course, we've listened to it twice, my wife and I, Amanda, in the car, driving to different destinations. It's a fascinating look at the, at the decision-making process, what drives our choices, what gives us our conscious and unconscious drives to make certain decisions and do certain things instead of others. And with The Great Courses Plus, you can watch this and as many different lectures as you want anytime, anywhere, stream from any internet-connected TV, PC are through the Great Courses Plus apps. And you can get this for free right now by using this URL. Go to 
thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. Guys, you know the best things come in sets of three. What does it have to do with anything? Well, get this. March is the third month of the year, and it also happens to be our friends over at Harry's third anniversary, their three-year anniversary as a business. And if you're new to Harry's, I have a special deal for you to try three of their expertly crafted five-blade German razors, a handle and shave cream included for just 10 bucks with the offer code so smart. Listen, this is a good offer because I use this. This is what I use. This is my razor, my shaving cream, my stuff. I switched to them when they were an advertiser way back and I love their stuff. I push it on everyone. This is so worth it. I really believe in this product. You should get it. Five blade German razors made in a factory that they own. It's super good stuff. It feels like you are shaving with a laser beam on your skin that does not burn. It feels like somehow it just wipes away the hair. It's the best. Beautiful packaging, beautiful products, and I love it. I love it. I love it. They give you so many blades. They last forever. It's great. It's the best shave I've ever had using a stick with blades on the end of it. I think you should get this for your life. It's really good stuff. I want you to have it. This is the only shaving company that has amazing quality and low prices like this. German engineered five blade cartridges, close, comfortable shaves, no cuts or burns, quality guaranteed, full refund if you're not happy, factory direct prices. They cut out the middleman. It ships right to your door, right when you need it. You set up the time period you need that is specific to your hair growth and how often you go through blades. And they arrive at your door right when you need them. I don't know what else to say. It's just really, it's a really good product. Half the price of the leading brand. A million people are already using this product. A thousand or more switch every day. It's great stuff. So don't pay $32 for an eight pack of blades when you get them at half price at harrys.com. Calm. The starter set is a great deal for anyone. For 15 bucks, you get a razor, moisturizing cream, and three blades. But with this offer, you get $5 off, so you get it for $10. Harry's does not usually discount because their prices are already so low, but we've worked out a special offer for everyone who listens to this podcast. Harry's will give you $5 off your first order with the promo code SOSMART. Stop overpaying for a great shave. Go to harrys.com. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. And the promo code is so smart. And now we return to our program. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast, and we are interviewing David Dunning, one of the scientists who coined the term the Dunning-Kruger effect. Now back into the interview. Tell us a little bit about this, um, the MacArthur-Wheeler incident. I think that's one of the coolest stories about how uh, a psychological phenomenon finally got quantified. How, uh, tell us how, uh, a little bit about the incident and how that led to your research. Yeah, in the early days, I, I was thinking a lot about um, the question of do incompetent people 
know they're incompetent because um, uh, if you're in a college professor's office, you often have people, and they're not necessarily students, come into your office with wild-eyed ideas. <laughs> and you just look at them and you you think in the back of your head, they must know what they're saying is doesn't make sense. Or if, if it's not in your office, you, you go to a faculty meeting and you, you hear it there. Um, uh, and, uh, but in the early, but one of the stories that I encountered, uh, early on was the story of this would-be bank robber in Pittsburgh, um, Pennsylvania, who, um, robbed a couple banks in broad daylight with no visible, um, disguise. And the police caught him within hours. I mean, it was just a question of showing his, uh, face from surveillance tapes, um, in the evening news and before midnight he was caught. And he was incredulous uh, because uh, as the police showed him the surveillance tapes, um, he started to mutter, uh, but I wore the juice. I wore the juice. That is, he thought that put, smearing your face with lemon juice would render it invisible or fuzzy to video cameras. Um, uh, you know, a wild theory to begin with. Yeah. Uh, but he, he really, really believed, but he really believed it to the tune of actually um, – robbing a couple of banks without any sort of precaution against being caught uh, based on this theory. Now, to his credit, he actually tested the theory. Uh, he actually did smear his face with lemon juice uh, a few days before and then took a Polaroid selfie uh, of himself. And all he saw was wall. What he didn't realize that he, is that he had misshaped the camera. Uh, so there, there is a nuance uh, to uh, what he did wrong. But um, I, I remember reading this and kind of going, if a person can believe this, um, and you, you basically decide, aha, I found the magic key to a life of crime that will succeed, uh, imagine uh, how many more times <laughs> in everybody's day some less flamboyant version of this is happening. Right. So, so that's what we decided to test out. Had, had he had some sort of incident or experience beforehand that made him, I mean, why was it lemon juice and not, you know, tomato juice or uh, a, a bag? Like, where did he come up with this idea on his, on his own? How did he, how did that even enter his mind? You know, it's an interesting question. I have no idea. And, uh, I, I now that you asked the question, I'd love to find out, <laughs> you know, why of all things lemon juice? It's so uh, I, I assume he was looking for it. <laughs> he was looking for some, he was looking for an edge as we all are. <laughs> And uh, he discovered the. Uh, I assume he discovered he he thought this was his edge, mm -hmm. and um, so where it came from, I don't know. That he was looking for something that would uh, suggest he could succeed a bank robbery. There's no doubt, um, uh, but uh, I don't know where the story came from because um, you, in doing this work, you get exposed to a lot of weird stories, mm -hmm. and. Um, and for some of them, you you have no idea where they could come from. You know, they 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 just sound weird, um, uh, but people act on them. So a lot, uh, I love it. I think that's the one of the weirdest things I've ever heard, and it led to this great insight into the human condition. And um, it's also what's great about the Dunning Kruger effect is that you know a lot of um, intellectuals and writers throughout history have sort of. Um, they've they've noticed it out in the world to some degree but then science finally came along and quantified it and i love when that happens it's one of my favorite things in the world um and a lot has been written about the dunning kruger effect here in the last uh especially the last 10 years what what so we can get it, so just so we can have it exactly right what is the true definition of the term okay well i'll give you the short version and then i'll expand upon it a little bit the okay. short version 
is that uh, incompetent people are not in a position to know they're incompetent uh, in many areas of life. Um, now, uh, there are actually, once you have that in place, there are a lot of other things that fall from that or, or follow from that. So incompetent people are, are uh, less, of a, uh, less good judges about other people and their skill. Uh, incompetent people can recognize they're incompetent once you change them into being competent. Um, and it's, uh, incompetent people are going to, it, it's going to be more difficult for them to learn just how um, low their skill level is. And this isn't about denial. This isn't about self-deception. They're just not in a position to know. And the reason they're not in a position to know is um, from something that we refer to as the double curse uh, or the double burden, which is that if you have gaps in your expertise or if you have corruptions in your expertise, you're getting some facts and figures and how they connect wrong, uh, that's going to lead to two different problems for you. The first problem is that you're going to make mistakes, obviously. I mean, if, if you lack expertise, you make mistakes. But... Um, in a lot of areas in life, um, the um, uh, you rely on those that you rely on that exact same expertise to judge whether or not you've made a mistake. Have you come to a right answer, or have you come to a wrong answer? And so, to the extent that you have gaps in your expertise or corruptions in your knowledge, or you're getting things wrong, uh, you're going to make wrong judgments about how good or how bad your decisions decisions are, and because everybody basically does what they think is the most reasonable thing to do, pretty much everybody's going to be left in a position where they think they're doing okay. They've chosen the best out of all the possible options that are out there. Their strategy is the one that makes the most sense. The problem for some of those people is they're incompetent, <laughs> and they, they don't have the expertise to realize that the strategy they've chosen has a lot of problems with it because they literally lack the expertise to be able to recognize those problems. If they had that expertise, um, at the very least, they'd be asking for advice from other people. So, uh, so incompetent people are in a, um, a special situation where it's not that they don't recognize um, their um, lack of skill. And it's not that they're denying their lack of skill. It's they're not in a position to, to make the call correctly. Uh, they're not in a position to realize just how badly they're doing. It, it, you just don't. You just don't know the things you don't know. It's like, um, yeah, exactly. It's like, uh, I think about how you really, really, really smart people from our, uh, <clears throat> from the history of science will, will oftentimes come to conclusions simply because there's a giant amount of stuff that they don't know about what they're studying, whether it's like, uh, like canals on Mars and water on Mars and stuff like that. Like they, they're doing a, a they're doing their best. They're doing hard science and they're checking everything. Not like, unlike, uh, the guy with the lemon juice, they're, uh, they're, they're properly going about trying to study the the world, but there, there's so much that they're unaware of, um, to the degree that they're not aware of the even lack of knowing it. And, and it can just lead to mm. really strange, uh, hypotheses about what, how the world works. No, I think that's right. Um, <clears throat> uh, but you know, absent, uh, knowing the true knowledge, often what you're left with can at least uh, uh, leave you with enough that you can come up with something that seems reasonable, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, for example. So remember that medicine used to be based on uh, applying leeches to people to drain them of blood. There was probably a, 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 some sort of phenomenon, some sort of folklore out there that made that uh, plausible. 
even though today we would find that to be incredibly implausible. And um, uh, so uh, one way to think about uh, the problem of the incompetent uh, or people who are choosing incorrectly is we all have a lot of knowledge. Or we, let's say we all have a lot of facts, a lot of figures, uh, a lot of metaphors in our head, um, a lot of heuristics we can use uh, in thinking, rules of thumb, and so forth. And from that, we can cobble together what seems to be a reasonable um, answer to whatever problem we have in front of us. And the issue with is that might be the most reasonable answer we can come up with, but that doesn't prevent that reasonable answer from being wrong. Mm-hmm. And the and the reason we don't see it as wrong is because there's all this other knowledge, if you will, all this all this other information that we simply are not aware of. So uh, one of the ways um, <clears throat> I describe what's going on uh, that is there's a borderline between what we know and what we don't know. And I think everybody would agree with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there are two other uh, assertions I would make that uh, might be contentious, um, but not after you think about it for a little while. The first is that border happens real quick, and it happens well within the geography of our everyday life. So that often uh, we're acting out of knowledge, but often we're acting out of ignorance and just don't know it. We've crossed that borderline between uh, what we know and what we don't know. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just, from our lab, we have lots of examples of that where people, you know, go off and they make a decision, they're confident, but they're acting on a totally wrong belief, uh, a lemon juice belief, if you will. Um, I'm going uh, to use that for the rest of my life. Uh, well, yeah, actually, it's, it's a nice phrase, actually, because it does encapsulate it. Uh, but the uh, but here's the thing that I think it potentially is the most contentious, but the thing that our research suggests is the most true, uh, which is of all the irony of the things we don't know, um, the one thing we definitely don't know is where that borderline is between our knowledge and our ignorance. So uh, there might be a true right line between what we know and what we don't know, but you and I don't know where it is. Right. And so we're stepping over it all the time rather confidently and, and stepping back from it, and we don't know when we're doing that. And that is that starts to create um, a number of problems, first in judging our own expertise in anything, but also uh, judging the quality of our decisions in everyday life. It's, it's really one of my favorite things when you read about the history of, um, of science is to is when you come across people who were considered the smartest people of their day, or they were considered mm. absolute experts on something like, uh, someone who is considered an, ex- an expert naturalist or what, you know, someone who would be considered a biologist today, but, but at the time they were just someone who was an expert on life forms and they would just be absolutely completely wrong in a way that is, um, you know, the average third grader today would, would recognize, um, whether it's like spontaneous generation or things like that. And um, I love, what I love most about that is that that person was considered to be like, uh, they had achieved the highest level of expertise. That's right. For that time period. Yet they, the vastness of their ignorance was, um, is, is in- incredible. And they could never have known that. And, 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 you know, of course, the first thing you think is how applicable is that to our experts today? Do you think that we're, we're getting better at uh, accounting <clears throat> accounting for the ignorance that's probably uh, part of whatever it is that we're studying. 
Well, uh, 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 the first blush answer I have to give is I don't know. Uh, because, <laughs> because one of the things I do worry is you're right. If you go you know, back 300 years and take a look at all the theories that were well-received scientific theories 300 years ago, and you roll your eyes at them um, because we're in a privileged position uh, being here in the 21st century, uh, you, it begins to dawn on you probably 300 years from now, uh, you know, someone will be, you know, looking at scientific principles or theories, something like the, 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 the Dunning-Kruger effect and, go, uh, and rolling their eyes about how wrong uh, those researchers got it uh, back then. So that's a, that's a, so the idea that our most cherished beliefs, even scientific ones, might be overthrown is, is um, uh, just something I accept. You know, that could happen and uh, it's happened in the past, it's going to happen in the future. But uh, one of the things I will say that puts us in a better position now is um, uh, the habits of science, if you will. Um, that is, uh, you've uh, mentioned that um, this problem of incompetence or ignorance has been mentioned for a long, long time, and it has, all, you, all the way back to Socrates and Plato. Um, but uh, where you see an outburst of talking about limits of knowledge and discovering limits of knowledge uh, is in the Enlightenment. And uh, out of the habits of people, out of the Enlightenment, and one of the habits of science, uh, doing scientific reasoning. Uh, and so we, if we're in a better position to know when we're wrong and in a, in a better position to discard what turns out to be a childish theories as opposed to more mature and more valid theories, uh, it, I think it's because of the ways of science and in particular one habit that um, is inbred uh, or, or baked into the enterprise. And, and that's the... Uh, habit of skepticism or the habit of disconfirmation. Uh, that is, uh, uh, what I tell students is scientists don't go out and um, try to create evidence for their favorite theories. Some will think that that's what they're doing, but that's not really what the enterprise is all about. Uh, the enterprise is really an enterprise about disconfirmation where you might have a pet theory like the Dunning-Kruger effect or whatever I thought last week, which turned out to be wrong, and you test it in the laboratory or you test it uh, via data. And um, I can't tell you how many dozens or hundreds of my pet ideas have gone to the laboratory and died. Hmm. Uh, <clears throat> and um, that's valuable knowledge, you know, to, uh, to realize which of your ideas are wrong or ideas are childish or uh, ideas are naive. And if an idea can survive uh, an experiment, it probably is a correct and vibrant theory um, to behold or, or to have. And so I think if we are in an advantage situation uh, now, it's because uh, uh, it, 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 we've learned, and especially in the scientific world, we've learned that the, the name of the game is disconfirmation. It's not confirmation. Yeah, it feels like that was the, that is going to, is one of the biggest turning points in all of, uh, you know, the pursuit of knowledge is that seeking disconfirmation first, that's, that's what gets you results. That's what gets you to the moon. And, uh, um, and it's so bizarre that the Dunning Kruger effect is kind of our default setting. We have to unlearn to do that, you know? Um, that's right. That's right. I I'm looking at your, um, one of your papers here. Uh, and I, I read this earlier and I loved it because, um, it, it, this, it, it sort of illustrates that, um, there's a lot of nuance here. There's a lot more meat on the bone, and that is uh, one of your uh, studies that you did. It was with um, um, 
uh, probably Joyce earlier. Oh yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had told he told a, two groups of people two different things, but you gave them the same test. One test uh, you told them that the one group that the test was going to be of uh, computer uh, literacy skills, and he told the other group it was going to be uh, just you know logic and reasoning. And then, but both these two groups took the same test, but they had different estimates of how well they had performed on it. Could you sort of elaborate on that? Oh yeah, uh, that uh, uh, that was just a uh, key idea that that uh, uh, Joyce had, which is that. Um, uh, a lot of what we think about our performances, like uh, you know, have I said anything articulate today in, in your podcast, or um, you know, how well will I do in my uh, course lecture tomorrow, uh, isn't actually based on the experience of the of the podcast or the course lecture. It's it's actually inferred. It's something that I um, reason out from abstract ideas I already have about myself. So, uh, so uh, performance estimates like how well did I do today are actually, uh, in psychological jargon, top-down. That is, we take preconceived notions we have about ourselves, like, um, am I a good lecturer? And then infer whether or not our lecture was good or not based on this preconceived notion of whether we think we're a good lecturer or, or a bad lecturer, a good public speaker or a bad public speaker. And so we uh, tested this idea out by um, giving students a pop quiz on uh, verbal reasoning. Uh, but we gave the test uh, two different labels uh, that we knew students would have a differ a differing reaction to. Uh, one label was this is uh, that this was a test of abstract reasoning, and the one thing we knew about our students is they say they have abstract reasoning that that's a that's a skill they have up the wazoo. Um, in fact, I would I, I would agree with that. In fact, sometimes their thinking is a little bit too abstract, but that's another story. And the other group was told that. Um, this was a test of the type of reasoning used in computer programming. Uh, and we knew from the students who wander into our experiments that they would deny until the day of their death that they have that skill. So they go, they take the test. It's the same test, same questions, same answers, um, same font, same, all created on the same Xerox machine. So for all intents and purposes, it's the same experience that's being presented. But the students who thought it was an abstract reasoning test, um, uh, thought they did much better on it than uh, they got more questions right. They got 8 out of 10 as opposed to, let's say, 6 out of 10 um, relative to those who thought it was about computer programming. Uh, and in fact, um, this difference between whether uh, they thought they were good at abstract reasoning versus bad at computer programming was just a strong indicator of how well people thought they had done, as was their actual performance. Uh, so it wasn't that people were divining uh, how well they had done from the actual experience in any way that um, was tightly tied to accuracy. They were inferring how well they had done from what they already thought about themselves. And let me just mention two follow-ups to that work. Uh, The one follow-up, which uh, uh, is now turning out to be important uh, that we did it, was we brought uh, students into our laboratory and gave them a pop quiz on science. And one of the things we monitored was, well, uh, what was the gender of the person walking in? Were they, uh, were they male or were they female? Because one of the things we know is starting the late teens, uh, teen, uh, uh, teenage boys and teenage girls start to differ in how scientifically talented they think they are. And so we knew that, and we... T- we confirmed that uh, uh, male students walking into our laboratory thought they had more scientific talent than the female students thought they did. 
they're all taking the same test. By the way, they all do exactly the, they they all do uh, equally well, men and women, uh, in uh, on this test. But uh, when you ask them afterward how well they think they've done, uh, the men think they've done much better than the women think they've done. Um, that is that uh, you can have this split in preconceived notion about yourself um, that begins to play out in terms of uh, the impressions people are um, uh, are creating about uh, whether they're good at scientific tasks or bad at scientific tasks. And uh, in a... Uh, basically, in modern times, we know that men are overrepresented in engineering and science. Uh, this could be one of the mechanisms that's producing it. Not differences in actual talent, but differences in perceived talent, uh, which cause people to um, evaluate themselves differently on a day-to-day basis. And, I'll, and one last follow-up, um, uh, because <clears throat> this is also uh, this this is where the work. Uh, uh, begins to impress me. Not that I've done it, but the results coming in begin to be, give pause. Which is that um, you can ask the question, uh, why are these preconceived notions of self having an impact on how well people think they're doing? Uh, wouldn't it be swamped by the, just the actual experience of the test? That is, are you having a conflict between which answer you should choose? Is it taking you a long time? To come to an answer, do the terms look familiar? Do they look alien? You would think this bottom-up experience. Right, right. The look and feel of the test would just swamp the individual difference. Um, uh, with Clayton Critcher, we did a follow-up to the original work, and we discovered that a lot of people's actual bottom-up experience is formed by their top-down preconceptions. So that if you're skilled, you think you're answering the questions more quickly. You think the terms look more familiar. You experience less conflict uh, between the various answers that you can give, even though we can find no evidence of this in reality. But the the look and feel of the test literally changes based uh, based on what you think about your ability walking into the room. Wow! See that that's so the inference on the back end is changing the way you perceive the reality of what you just experienced. And I also uh, and correct me if I'm wrong you can um, prime people going into the test by saying women typically, this is a test of scientific knowledge and women typically don't do very well on those tests. And then that can actually affect the process of taking the test going in, or you can change it to whatever, like uh, cultural or ethnicity uh, uh, variables that you can mess with by priming people going in can also affect how they uh, perform on the test as well. Is that true? Uh, that's right. So uh, when we were uh, in our work, what we find is we find um, what we're doing doesn't affect actual performance, but it does affect what people perceive of their performance. Right. But there is a, a, a lot of work uh, on the topic of stereotype vulnerability or stereotype threat in uh, in social psychology, showing that ultimately you get differences in actual performance. Okay. So, uh, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, so okay, with, with Dunning Kruger and with this um, this inference thing that comes from the um, I think, as you call it, the chronic, a chronic self of you of yourself. Oh yeah, uh, I love that. Yeah, um, exactly. So, um, so with this inference thing, where you uh, actually experience less um, conflict and you feel like you're doing gr- a great job while you're taking the test or not, depending on what you're uh, uh, viewing, how you view yourself and how you view the material. How does it? Um, if you, if you, as a, as an expert, as a scientist could choose between like a head of state, like a president or, or maybe like a military commander or something or someone who in a position of great power and authority, 
which which would you prefer to have someone who is who is confident in a way that maybe they uh don't deserve or someone who is very very accurate at assessing how well they're doing at a certain task and how good their decisions were on the back end oh the only answer i can give is i want them both but at different times okay uh that is um uh there are uh, there are some times when confidence is very very important that is, for example, if you're a general and you're about to lead your troops into battle, uh, you definitely want to be confident because you want your troops to execute their tasks and not have any doubts and not to delay because that's going to save lives. But you don't, so you want a, you want a confident uh, a general at that moment. But before that moment, you want a general who's, who's incredibly cautious, you know, who wants as many troops as possible, as much ordnance as possible, uh, who has a plan B and plan C if plan A doesn't work out. Uh, that is, you want someone who's, uh, who's filled with doubts and using those doubts to try to um, uh, figure out all the contingencies that are out there that can happen on the day that uh, the battle begins. So you, you want that overly cautious general in preparation, but the day of battle, when it's time to execute, you want a confident general. Mm-hmm. So, um, so uh, one way to think about confidence is that it, it has its bad sides and it has its good sides. So it ultimately turns out to be something that you need to manage. You need to know when you should have it and when you should not have it. And uh, there is no blanket answer um, that, and, and how you manage confidence is not about should I always be confident or should I always be cautious. Mm-hmm. You really have to turn on the caution and turn it off and turn on the confidence in those moments when it's going to be the most helpful for you or whoever you're leading or whoever you're responsible for. Wow. And so, and that, that's another meta skill that you have to, uh, <laughs> to practice and hone. That's uh, right. Yeah, yes. Uh, there, unfortunately in life, there are a lot of meta skills. There, there are many, many of them. So it's not a surprise that some of them we were not very good at. Right. So if you, uh, in a, like a, in an institution that wants to be better at making decisions and wants to be better at having people who are actually good at what they do and don't just think they're good at what they do. Are there some suggestions from psychology about how to build better institutions? Uh, there, uh, there are some helpful um, uh, points that psychology suggests in order to avoid um, overconfidence that leads you over, over the cliff, if you will. The first is that although it's unpleasant, uh, you do want to have uh, naysaying voices involved in any sort of decision that you make. That is, you want someone to play a devil's advocate. Um, uh, to Basically to poke holes in what the, the group or the institution might be thinking about uh, what it wants to do. Uh, the reason for that is having a devil's advocate can spot, uh, it help uh, the organization spot when it's being overconfident. Or sometimes just improve the decision that uh, the institution's going to do. So you want that. Uh, the, the second thing you want to do is you want to build in um, buffers for wrong decisions, and more importantly, wrong decisions that you can't anticipate. You know that some of your decisions are going to be wrong. You know that there are going to be complications. You just don't know when they're going to happen. So in the software world, uh, software development, uh, it's quite common to go to uh, software developers and ask, how long will it take you? to um, uh, design and uh, execute this uh, new software that we're, we're building. And the, uh, uh, the developer will give you an estimate, and you go, thank you very much, and then you immediately inflate it by 30%. <laughs> 
because you know that the uh, software developer is going to be overconfident, hasn't anticipated everything. So you just know that from uh, past experience, you inflated 30% and you inflated up to 100% if it's a new operating system, for example. And um, architects know this. So they'll, um, when they're building a building, they'll calculate how much concrete uh, they need in order to make sure the building will be stable. And then they just multiply that, that number by as much as eight. Right. Uh, to make sure. So you just build in those sorts of buffers. Yeah. Um, now, both these, you know, having a devil's advocate is unpleasant. Building, adding more concrete is more expensive. But uh, what it does do is it does uh, insulate you against um, unknown incompetence. And you just know that it's going gonna, it's gonna to show up sooner or later. You just don't know where. So you might as well just have these policies that help you um, address uh, uh, the problems that you can't anticipate when they finally uh, uh, finally rear up and uh, uh, try to bite you. That is fantastic. Um, and it's also, I love whenever people acknowledge our shortcomings and account for them, whether it's with checklists, even with surgeons oh, yeah. or, or things exactly. like that. Or in this case, like uh, taking something like Dunning-Kruger and saying, look, this is probably happening. It's all over the place. Let's, let's account for it. Um, and I was reading that some of your more recent research is in the realm of, um, we're not, we're bad looking one direction, but we're also bad looking the other and that we are, uh, mm. both, both bad at recognizing genius, genius or something like genius, if you want to use a different word. And, yes. um, and geniuses themselves are kind of bad at knowing that they're, the, that they are. Is that true? <laughs> well, no, that's, that's actually part of the original Dunning-Kruger, um, framework was that, uh, Geniuses often don't know how special they are uh, because for them, uh, tasks come easy, uh, the right answer comes easy, and so they just assume if it's easy for me, it's easy for everybody. And, uh, that, and that's, a, that's very much a, a living phenomenon I see every day with very bright students or anybody who has more expertise in something than I have. Uh, they just assume I'm understanding everything they're saying and I have no clue what they're talking about. So if a plumber comes to our house... On occasion, I will I will carry a tape recorder so that <laughs> I, they're, they're going to speak too fast. I'm not going to be able to follow, uh, but I'll be able to replay and then look up into Google what I think the words oh, are. That's great advice. That's that's some good life hacking right there. Good job. Well, yeah, but uh, you know, I have to, uh, but you have to. I have to do it because I now recognize that person um, things that I understand. And, uh, there's, uh, other than crying, I, I don't seem to have anything in my arsenal to make a person <laughs> understand that I don't understand. Uh, that, uh, that was part of the original package, part of the family of effects that fall out of, uh, uh, incompetent people not knowing they're incompetent. But our current work, uh, what we're doing is asking, well, what happens at the collective level? That is, you act, ask about a group or a business or society, sort of what extensions are, are, are there of this uh, Dunning-Kruger framework? And the first thing that comes to mind is that uh, the collective, you know, is competent, but it's not perfectly competent, which means often it's not in a position to recognize true genius when it shows up. So um, one of my favorite examples of this uh, is the film Vertigo by Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, yeah which just um, just was voted the number one film of all time by Sight and Sound, the British uh, critics, uh, Film Critics Society. And that, that's sort of the most honored list, as far as I know, that's the most honored list. 
Um, you know, it uh, it was a bomb, or it made it, it's it made it it made its money back, but it was passed over for best picture. It was nominated for best picture, um, and uh, it got really mixed reviews when it came out. So it literally took. 50 years for the genius um, uh, that was contained in Vertigo to be recognized. And uh, the same is true for a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. Go back and look at the original reviews of the Gettysburg Address, for example. You'll find a lot of people who kind of go, wow, that was short and uninspiring. Mm-hmm. Um, Moby Dick. Uh, I, I remember <laughs> reading how Moby, people thought Moby Dick was terrible, uh, unreadable. Well, there was also... Um, a lot of Walt Whitman stuff. People are like, oh, this guy's terrible. Why do people read this? So, yeah, that, it comes up a lot. It, it, it does come up a lot. And so what we did is uh, we uh, currently are engaged in a number of studies where uh, we expose people to others who are performing very poorly to performing extremely well like in logical reasoning or in, in the financial literacy that they're displaying uh, toward others uh, or they're displaying. And what we find is that uh, the collective is pretty good at knowing who's bad. I mean, the collective is pretty good at judging who the poor performers are. But uh, top performers just really get underrated. Um, they, they just get missed. And so uh, our pithy way of saying it is that genius often just hides in plain sight because people just don't have the, the intellectual scaffolding to be able to recognize it. And so that uh, whether that genius is embodied in a person or in an idea, um, uh, uh, people or the collective often just doesn't have the genius itself to be able to recognize wow. uh, what it has, and, and and so that that that's what we're working on right now in a number of different ways. That's awesome, and and, it's, and of course, you know, here's the problem: you've just handed another uh, out for someone who's like, well, maybe I'm just a genius, and uh, no one can recognize it. Well, no, I think that's exactly right. Or as one of my colleagues once said, you've explained the experience of every working class kid who's really <laughs> smart in their high school. But the problem is, is you, you're right. I mean, uh, th- this uh, explains the uh, true experiences of uh, re- some really smart people. But it also explains uh, or purports to explain the experiences of people who think they're smart, but they're not really smart. And that's wow. a much larger number. It just it just all around illustrates how... Uh, oddly enough, we are not very good at assessing our own selves. I mean, uh, before we go, I, I wanted to get this question in before we go. And that is, sure. um, it seems like, okay, obviously we're very bad in every, in both directions when it comes to, uh, uh assessing ourselves, um, and, and accurately figuring out how skilled or not skilled, how knowledgeable, how not knowledgeable. It seems like that would be an important and an adaptive skill to possess. Mm. Um, it seems like it would be bad for us, evolutionarily speaking. Uh, is it just a glitch or a bug in the system? Or what is your take on on that perspective? Oh, well, my take is that um, I, I have a couple of different takes. The first is that evolution is designed to make us good enough to survive, but it's not going to make us all geniuses, uh, for example. Um, so we're, we're going to be competent enough to be able to ingest enough calories until we reach the age where potentially we can procreate. It'll make, get us to that level, but it, it won't make us all Einsteins, uh, for example, or Alfred Hitchcocks or what, whatever genius that, that you want to think about. So it'll get us up to a, a certain level. But, I, but the second uh, point is just noting how difficult this task is, that uh, if you sit down and say, why don't people know themselves? You begin to realize that there are just some in there are some really big barriers uh, to knowing yourself. 
And uh, those barriers are so big um, that uh, evolution is, is not tough enough uh, to be able to defeat them. And, and so, that's, uh, so that's what I think. One, however, let me leave with this note, which is that um, uh, when we're talking about it's it, difficult to know yourself, that's if you make it a private uh, task that only you are engaged in. You don't talk to other people. If you talk to other people, they can be sources of invaluable uh, insight into yourself. Uh, some of it may be unpleasant. Um, but uh, also just watching what other people do and benchmarking what you do versus what they do can be a source of insight. Uh, so that's something to, uh, to consider, that it takes a village, if you will, to, for a person to know themselves. Um, uh, oh, sure, there's one other thing I was going to mention here. Let me see if I can quickly... Uh, uh, oh, oh, yes, the other thing is that um, uh, uh, people sometimes ask me, okay, how do you figure out if you are gaining in knowing yourself? And one of the uh, hints I give, I don't know if it's true or not, but it, it sounds right, is uh, to ask people, are you vaguely embarrassed by things you did five or ten years ago? <laughs> and if you are, uh, that means good. You're evolving. You're improving. I mean, if you think about the self you were ten years ago and you're not embarrassed by, by something that you did, um, you might be off the task of, of right. really figuring out the type of person you are or the type of person you might be. So I'm, I'm always happy uh, in a second-order way when I read one of my old papers and kind of go, wow, uh, boy, did I do that wrong. Um, right. That's great advice. Like you should all – if you're a creative person or you're, you, you output uh, work like you do uh, – I would hope that you could always look back on the stuff that you've made and be like, yeah, because like, uh, especially if you're a writer, if you don't look back at this, at your old stuff, if you look back at your old stuff and say, wow, I used to be really great. I mean, then there's a, you are definitely moving in the wrong direction. No, and I think that's absolutely right. So, but, but by the way, sometimes it happens in reverse, which is you'll look at an old piece and kind of go, oh, now I get it. Now I get why, why people were paying attention to that. Um, I didn't get it then, but now I get it. Now I see. Um, uh, you know, to the extent that you can sort of look at your past self and see a different person. It suggests that you yourself now are a different person and hopefully one that that's more uh, insightful. And I think here's something that I think people would like to know. This would, this would be my, la my last question. I'll say my best for last. And that is, sure. um, how does David Dunning live his life differently knowing what he knows about the Dunning-Kruger effect? Uh, I'm much more likely just to accept what I'm wrong. <laughs> uh, uh, that is, if uh, I think A is going to happen and then the opposite of A happens, I sort of look at that and say, okay, I'm, I'm shifting course. I was wrong. I'm, uh, I don't uh, rebel against experience and I, I don't rebel against data uh, the way I might uh, when I was younger. Um, I'm a little bit more laid back about making mistakes. Now, mind you, beforehand, I don't want to make mistakes. It's terrible to make mistakes sometimes. And then some doozies have been made. Um, but um, uh, afterward, I, I don't beat myself up as much. Uh, I just accept uh, that a mistake has been made and try to learn and try to figure out what I should learn from it. Okay. So look, um, people are going to want to find you. They're, they want, they will want to keep up with you and see what you're doing in the future. How can they do that? Uh, a couple different things. Um, my... Um, uh, if you Google uh, uh, David Dunning and the term sassy, S-A-S-I, 
that'll get you to my lab's website so you can see whatever is going on there. Um, and um, uh, I also have a, uh, a list there if there's something like this where I've, I've made a contact with the media, there's been some interview or some article or something like that. Uh, I list it there and, and often people can sort of, uh, from the website, work their way into material that they might find interesting. So that's the place uh, where I'd start. Right. Well, look, thank you so much. I love your work. Uh, you've been, you know, very important to all the things that I've been into in the last few years. And I just really appreciate what you do. And I thank you so much for coming home. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. You need to go to boingboingpodcasts.com. Boing, boing, podcasts.com. You will find one of my favorite new podcasts, Flash Forward. There's an episode about sex robots. There's an episode about a future without any lies. An episode about a future in which we have no more mosquitoes. An episode about spreadsheet approved lives and much, much more. I love it. It's one of several new podcasts in the new Boing Boing podcast family. Check it out. If you'd like to hear all of the previous episodes of this podcast, go to Boing Boing or to iTunes or to Stitcher and you will find all of them. Or you can find this along with the show notes and everything else at youarenotsosmart.com. Okay, new episode next time. More logical fallacies. See you then. Once again, this episode was brought to you by Trunk Club. Trunk Club takes the hassle out of shopping by finding the best clothes for you and your style. You'll look and feel amazing, and you'll always have the perfect clothes for the season. At trunkclub.com slash smart, you will answer simple questions about your style, your preferences, your sizes, and you'll be assigned an expert stylist who will handpick clothes from the best premium brands. Just approve the ones you like, send back the ones you don't, and remember, it's not a subscription service. You only pay for the clothes you keep from your trunk. No hidden charges, just great clothes. Get it today. Free shipping both ways. Style for free at trunkclub.com slash smart. That's trunkclub.com slash smart for a trunk filled with clothes you will love wearing.